will be looking this morning, if, you're, uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, at Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 19 to 24. We will have the text on the screen, but I always encourage you to either pull out your Bible app, if that's what you're carrying today on your phone, uh, or your copy of the Word of God. Um, there's something to seeing that on a page and being able to recall where it is in your copy so that you can go back to it later. We'll be in Romans chapter 9 in just a few minutes. But parents, can we just talk and be honest from the get-go here this morning? Perhaps there is no other word that parents dread to hear more from their kids, especially when their kids are very young, more than the little three-letter word, why? But why, mommy? See the picture? Everybody look up at the picture. You got to see the picture. It makes the point. Why, Mommy? Daddy, Daddy, why? And no doubt, children, give equal, equal time here, especially as they grow older, don't like to hear the response from Mama or Daddy, because I said so. But may I suggest that because I said so, is an important and needful answer to give your children. Especially when our children are young and too little to understand, it is imperative that you establish your authority and command respect as their mama and daddy. Just a little aside here. If you don't, you'll know you didn't. And you'll reap the fruit of that parenting failure. How vital... To our kids' future, it truly is that our children be taught and disciplined to respect our parental authority, both for their own safety, right, as well as the order and peacefulness of your home, and later on, their success in relationships in this world from their own homes to the workplace where they'll spend so much of their time. But even more importantly, this simple answer trains your children how to relate to God, who is sovereign over all. And though he mercifully gives us many, many answers throughout the Word of God, the Bible, God reserves the right to be God. And as God, he can and does, like no other parent, at times and at points, say to us, because I said so, period. We come to one of those places in our study of the book of Romans this morning. We've been going through this wonderful letter under the heading, studying the the letter to the Roman church under the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. We've seen that if you boil the whole letter down, what is it about? It's about the good news that holy God who demands perfect righteousness from us in order to have a relationship with him gives us, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the very righteousness that he demands as a gift to be simply taken by faith. If you boil it all down, that's what it's about. And Paul spends 16 chapters unpacking all the truth of, of that good news and then later on its implications in our lives. Now, we're in, in, a, in a passage here, Romans 9 through 11, probably the three most difficult chapters of the book, and perhaps, might I add, of Scripture. Romans 9 through 11, though, 
you know, you, you, could, you could think that maybe it's just kind of misplaced. Maybe it's like, where did this come from? We've been talking about the love of God, Romans 8. If you skip ahead to Romans 12, 1, he says, Now, by the mercies of God, I urge you to be living sacrifices. I beseech you to make yourself living sacrifices. By the mercies of God, Romans 8, 39, love of God. It just seems like then in the middle of that, he sticks 9 through 11 about Israel and the elect and all these things we've been seeing. So what that tells us is this, Romans 9 through 11 is clearly still a discussion of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 39, and it's a discussion about the mercies of God, chapter 12, verse 1, and these three chapters, whatever else they're about, are written and, 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 and given to us to move us to sacrificial lives of worship to the God of our salvation, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's to move us to these lives of living sacrifice. So as we continue to work through these three chapters, do not lose sight of that. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Remember that these chapters are about the love of God and are written to motivate us to give ourselves more fully to Him. Let it shape all that we see and learn in these chapters. But what else is going on in Romans 9 through 11, especially in Romans 9? John Piper says, Romans 9 comes after Romans 8 for this utterly crucial reason. It shows that the word of God's covenant with Israel has not failed, in fact, because it is grounded in God's sovereign, individually electing mercy. John Stott said it this way, God's promise did not fail, but it was fulfilled, as the text says, only in the Israel within Israel. So God made promises to the nation of Israel, but God made those promises realizing that their, that their fulfillment, like, like they were actually being made only to those who would trust the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's promise did not fail. It was fulfilled only in the Israel within Israel. Many mysteries surround what is known as the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systematize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. And so we've been looking at this truth of election as unfolded in Romans 9. But I agree with John Stott. It's a mystery. If we can put it all in a package and perfectly shape it and explain it, then we've probably missed the truth. Because we're into the divine counsels. We're into the, to the mind of God as we begin to think about these things. And last time I checked, my mind's not his exactly. I'm, I'm human. He's God. I'm limited. He's unlimited. The key verses that we began uh, to look at were verses 11 through 13 where Paul says, though they were not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, the twins, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that, the, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, their mother, was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. And as we discussed briefly at the end of, uh, uh, of those verses, these verses lead to the subjection in our hearts and our minds. Well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would just pick one arbitrarily based on nothing in them. And because he had taught these things before, Paul anticipates and hears uh, he'd, heard, he'd heard all the questions and objections. He anticipates what we'll be thinking and, 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 and feeling in those moments. And so he writes verses 14 to 18, which we looked at last week. 
Last week we looked at the righteousness of God in sovereign mercy and holy justice. I need to just summarize that message briefly for you before we move into our new passage. The righteousness of God in sovereign mercy and holy justice from Romans 9, 14 to 18. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to give you the high points. What we learn from those verses is this. God is righteous in dealing with some in sovereign mercy through the saving work of Jesus. And he's righteous in dealing with others in holy justice on their sin. How can that be true? Number one, mercy is the opposite of justice. So when we start talking about God having mercy, what we need to understand is the discussion we're having is, is not in the realm of what is fair and just. And we've said from the very beginning, if God dealt with everyone fairly and justly, then a world full of sinners would go straight to hell, no collecting $200 or passing go. Amen? Bottom line, you want fair, you get hell. You want justice, hell is your portion. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's true for all of humanity. And so first of all, we must understand this discussion about God extending mercy is, is just that. And mercy is the opposite of justice. Now, while the opposite of justice, while mercy is the opposite of the justice we deserve, God's mercy to us in Jesus, I want you to hear this. We didn't touch on this last week, but I think it's very important. God's mercy to us in Jesus satisfies divine justice on our sin because, as we've learned already in Romans 3, Jesus bore God's wrath toward our sin for us. I just want to read quickly through Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How are we made right with God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what Jesus did. Here's what Jesus was all about. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, at the present time, so that he might be, listen, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In short, here's the, here's the wrap-up to those four verses. How can holy God declare you a sinner, me a sinner, righteous before God and still be just? What we're getting at is this. When God extends mercy, he does not do it unjustly. In other words, he's not like grandpa who sees the sin of his grandchildren clearly but just simply ignores it because he's, well, grandpa. This is not our God. God cannot just ignore, dismiss, let go our sin. Our sin has to be dealt with. And God has, has, has in, the, in, in his wonderful counsels, devised a way that he can be just and holy and righteous and at the same time justify sinners like me and you. How did he do it? He, made, he gave his own son to be our substitute. Jesus came and took our place and bore the wrath and justice of God so that our sins are punished on the tree in the death of Christ. And at the same time, because they were, we can be declared just and righteous and holy, even as Jesus is before God himself. That's important that we understand. When we talk about the mercy of God throughout the rest of this time and throughout the rest of this chapter, we understand it is just mercy. It is mercy that does not just ignore my sin or yours, the sin of those to whom God extends it. We saw last week, too, that God's glory, his name, 
is his divine freedom to sovereignly grant mercy. We saw that in verse 15. We also saw, according to verse 16, that election has nothing to do with the desires or works of its recipients. It is the sovereign act of the God of mercy. God picks. God is the one who chooses because he is God, not because we want anything in particular or because you or I do anything specifically. Read it there in verse 16. Verse 17 and 18 make it clear that God is just to withhold mercy. Remember, justice on a world of sinners is hell, right? The wages of sin is death, all of sin. What is just of God to do? To punish sin because he is holy. So if God chooses to extend mercy, he's not unjust in in doing so. But if he chooses not to extend mercy, he is in fact just in the doing. So, if you were tracking along last week, then at the end of the message, as I've told you would happen at every, every, every time, every, every week for the last two weeks we've done this, at the end of the message you, you, you end up with a question. You're going to still end up with one today. We're not going to answer that question you end up with today. We're going to answer the one you ended up with last week, and here's the one you end up with last week. You, think, you thought to yourself last Sunday at the end of the message, if God's completely sovereign over who trusts in Jesus and is saved and who does not, if it all ultimately depends on his choice, then then why does God hold anyone accountable for anything? If he ultimately determines everything that happens. Did you go there? Is that where you ended last time? Sure it is, and we're going to see Paul anticipating that. I want to talk to you today about the godness of God. You say, is that really a word? I don't know. I think it's one that Jonathan Edwards coined. We're going to use it. Everybody good? If you're an English teacher, I apologize, but I promise you'll get over it. The godness of God. Romans 9, 19 to 24, here's the take-home truth. Here's what I want you to see about the godness of God. The heart of who our God is as God is his sovereign freedom that causes his incomparable glory to be seen in his mercy toward the undeserving. That's what I want you to take home, and here's where I get it. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, Paul says, why does he still find fault? You'll remember verse, in verse 18, he has just said, that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul says, and I know what you're going to say. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory Don't miss these words. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also for the, from the Gentiles. Can you see in these verses the truth that the heart of who our God is as God is his sovereign freedom that causes his incomparable glory to be seen in his mercy toward the undeserving. I want to unpack these verses quickly with three points this morning. First of all, notice in verses 19 to 21, as we talk about the godness of God, as I want you to see the very heart of who our God is, the potter does not answer to the clay. Paul says, I know the question you're going to ask, and here's my answer. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The potter does not answer to the clay. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Can you imagine a chunk of clay on the potter's wheel beginning to speak to the potter and say, you know what, I don't want to be a jar. I mean, that's how ludicrous Paul sees this next step of questioning. Where created humanity looks at God and says, you know, here's the deal. God, you say you're totally sovereign. You say we're absolutely responsible to obey you. How's that work? How can you hold us accountable when no one resists your will? And you know what Paul says to that? Who are you? You've crossed the line. Who are you? To answer back to God. The potter does not answer to the clay. The clay does not get to judge the potter. Think about it. Just stay with me. If we get to sit in judgment over God, who becomes God? We do. Do you see why I say in the first part of our take-home truth, the heart of who our God is as God is his sovereign freedom? He doesn't have to answer to you or me. You know, as our children, back to that illustration we began with, grow older, even though we don't have to justify every direction we give to them. I tried to keep my kids, especially through the teenage years, very aware of that. Here's the thing, son, I don't owe you an answer. (laughs) Right? Parents, y'all Okay. That's important. Even though we don't have to give an answer to them, it's good and we do begin to explain the moral reason why, even from the time they're very young. Why? When they can understand why, we tell them why. We explain the way relationships work and why we expect certain behaviors and actions from them. And the older we get, the more we explain until one day, you look and they're all grown. And, by the way, just pretty much, for the most part, can reason for themselves as adults, as my three adult children sit here, three of my four adult children sit here, for the most part. You know, God graciously gave us an amazing book, a book from thousands of years ago, parts of it. That is full of so many amazing answers about our world, about our lives, about God. And we have the privilege to study the Word, to open it, just just to hold it, to read it, to hear it. And to grow by the study of of God's Word, Shelley, in our relationship with Jesus. 
throughout all the rest of our lives. And let me just encourage you, if you're not doing that, you are not, your light's not shining. It can't. And the fact is, if you're not in a, walking in a relationship with Jesus, you, you just need to make sure you're plugged in. Can I just go back to Center Kid for a second? Because plugged-in lamps are made to shine, and they put that switch on there for a reason. You have this book, and, and you know God for a reason, or maybe you don't. And you're one of whom Jesus will say at the last day, you said to me, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you depart from me. Which is it? You just need to settle that right here and right now. But we have this book. But, you know, often as children of God, we make the mistake of assuming that we can actually reach the place of spiritually all grown up. It's a real thing with my kids. And they're doing a real good job. I'm proud of them. I just want you to know that. The choices they're making, I'm thankful. But often as children of God in the spiritual realm, we make the mistake of assuming that we can actually reach the place that it is even a real place in this life of spiritually all grown up. There is no such thing. Are you with me? Because what that would mean is that suddenly you would be able to be on the same level and reason on the same level as God. And it won't happen in this life. Now, we don't actually form those thoughts and think that, you know, God, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on par with you. We don't, we don't speak those words. But even as is revealed in the question Paul raises and answers here in our text, we often do judge God, the potter when we can't understand his reasoning. And in so doing, we essentially are saying, God, what you've done or are doing doesn't make sense to me, so it must be wrong. You must have messed up. Which is essentially the foolish answer of our preteen or teenage son or daughter coming out of our own mouths to the almighty, sovereign God, the creator and sustainer of all things. You see, God's not answer to me. God does not answer to you. And Paul's, this is Paul's point here. We could go to the book of Job. Job was the most righteous man on the planet. He needed a savior. That's why he said, I know that my redeemer lives and one day he'll stand on the earth. I know it's all going to be, he's, God's got this. We have the insight from Job 1 to know that, that the whole Job story and all the tragedy that happened in Job's life, the reason for it is because God was proving to Satan the integrity of Job. But nowhere does God ever let Job in on the secret, the purpose, the why. You know, you know what God says to Job? Job, you're God, I'm not. Deal with it. I don't answer to you. I don't have to explain my ways to you. And I won't explain my ways to you. And he goes through about three chapters unpacking the fact that, Job, where were you when I created the world? And he just dresses Job down in summary form for three or four chapters, showing him to be God and Job to be creature. John Piper helps us pause to think about these things for just a moment. When he says this, are you sure that your inherited God is the biblical God? 
Is your God big enough and majestic enough and sovereign enough to be the God of the 21st century and of the world that we see developing around us as the church? Have you ever considered that what is coming to us in the 21st century may be so catastrophic, so unprecedented in this country that everything we ever knew of of earthly, earthly securities will fail and that this God, the God of Romans 9, the God that in our three centuries of American security and comfort and luxury could be so easily marginalized that this God may be precisely the God perfectly suited and needed to take on the challenge of Islam and shield us from false teachings within the church and be big enough to give you hope when the whole world seems to collapse and then rise in rebellion against Christ. Is the God of Romans 9 the God you inherited and the God you worship? God does not answer to me and you. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul says, here's the thing. This truth of election is true whether we like it or not. God makes the decision, though he should show mercy to no one, to show mercy to some. And that is his decision and prerogative as God. The potter does not answer to the clay. Secondly, notice with me, this is a complex Statement in verses 22 and 23. Notice with me here. As we think about the godness of God, God has decreed the world to ultimately and most brilliantly display his glory in his sovereign mercy in Jesus as seen against the backdrop of his holy wrath and justice. Let's read the two verses and then we'll come back to that thought. Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. These verses, catch it, tell us the ultimate purpose of God in all of history. John, John, Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a, a work, and if, you, if you've got a while and, and, and are interested, pick it up and read it. It'll take a while. The End for Which God Created the World. And I, think, I think I just gave you the short title. The End for Which God Created the World. This is the end for which God created the world. Romans 9, 22 and 23. What is that? Summarize these verses again. God has decreed the world. He's, he's, he's ordered the world in such a way so as to ultimately and most brilliantly display his glory in his sovereign mercy in Jesus as seen against the backdrop of his holy wrath and justice. Now, don't miss where God's glory is most fully made known. His glory is seen most clearly, the text says, in his mercy. God, the text says, wants to show his wrath and make his power known And therefore, he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That is, those who reject the gospel of Jesus. Why has he done that? Why does he have that patience? And and, and why does he exercise judgment in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? God deals with the deserving world of sinners in justice so that when he shows mercy, his mercy shines bright. We, we said this a couple weeks ago. This, the hymn that we sing is amazing 
grace, right? It's not amazing wrath. And yet you'd think talking to some American believers that, that, that it's amazing wrath. How crazy the sound. That God would do such a thing to me. Wrath is expected. Wrath is just. Wrath is what we should anticipate from a perfectly holy God. And yet God shows mercy. His glory, the riches of his glory is seen where? In his mercy. That's why we use this this verse uh, all the time. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. It says there, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ. Where is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen? Where does it shine? It shines in the face of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shines in the grace of God given to us through Jesus. What is the apex? Let's think of it this way as a big mountain. What is the apex, the summit of the glory of God? What's the high point of all of the beauties and and majesties of, of, of God in his entirety? It is his grace given to us in Jesus Christ. It is his mercy. Jonathan Edwards said, Thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested in wrath. And also the glory of his goodness, love and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. In other words... If God is not holy and just towards sin and full of wrath and and punishment towards sin, then what's so amazing about grace, right? And yet we we wrestle with this, don't we? We wrestle with a God so sovereign that, that he chooses who he saves and who he doesn't save. Piper's helpful here. He says, the effort to rescue God from his sovereignty, by the way, that's what we're doing when we start trying to figure it all out and explain it all and not just take God at his word. The effort to rescue God from his sovereignty by denying his foreknowledge of sin or by denying the ultimate control he has over sin is destructive, both for faith and hope and for worship. It is a great dishonor to his word and to his wisdom. You know, God knows what he's doing and has and will eternally have this thing of being God down pat. He doesn't need our counsel on that. He's never called me up and said, you know, Chad, I mean, things have been going pretty good for, you know, thousands of years here since I created the world, but I've come to something. (laughs) And, 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 And Kelly, I need your help. I need to know what you think on this point so I know kind of how to go forward with history. Never happened. What is he ultimately up to in this world? God has decreed the world to ultimately and most brilliantly display his glory in sovereign mercy in Jesus on us as vessels of honor, uh, vessels of mercy, as seen against the backdrop of his holy wrath and justice against vessels of wrath. John Stott says, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. 
If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This is a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. The heart of who our God is as God is His sovereign freedom that causes His incomparable glory to be seen in His mercy toward the undeserving of which we all are. And this mercy, this mercy, it is really personal to us who believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? Who, AJ, today trust Him. Which brings us to our third point. Believers in Jesus live in humble amazement at the sovereign mercy of God. Don't you, church? Believers in Jesus Christ live in humble amazement at the sovereign mercy of God. Verse 23, Paul says, God does all that he does in the world and in this issue of election in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared prepared beforehand for glory. Don't miss verse 24. Even us, who are those vessels of mercy? That's me. If you trust Jesus today, that's you. You're a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand by God for glory. And God's working this whole world together so that you can see his glory and mercy in your life. Wow. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We'll look at that part and go into the rest of the verses later. Even us, believers in Jesus, treasure and live in humble amazement at the sovereign mercy of God. Can you not, can you not hear Paul? Prepare beforehand for glory for the vessels of mercy. Even me, Paul says. Even you, church at Rome. This part's about us. We get to see his glory and his mercy. Whether you're Gentile, whether you're Jew, Paul says, if you trust in Jesus today, you are a vessel of mercy chosen and loved by sovereign God before the world began to be rescued from just wrath through the sin-atoning death of Jesus in your place so that you can enjoy him forever and share in his glory and his joy eternally. What a salvation. Guys... That's shouting ground. I don't know if you're awake. I mean, does that light anybody's fire? That you are a vessel of mercy. In the sovereign mercy of God, God has chosen to show you mercy. And he will forever. We are vessels of mercy. John Piper says, which means that in all our thinking about election and why we are saved and another not, we must continually focus on this. Stay with me. We do not deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven-bound this morning. It is all sovereign mercy, undeserved. Oh, may believers here this morning 
hear this as humbling. And if you're here today and don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ, if you're an, uh, one who rejects Jesus today as the only Savior of the world, I want you to hear in this hope. Hope. The heart of who our God is as God is his sovereign freedom that causes his incomparable glory to be seen in his mercy toward the undeserving. When the answers, when the explanations of God's ways in this world that are so abundant and rich and amazing, when they run out, when they end, when God stops telling us the answers to our questions like he does in this passage, Paul says, let God be God. Don't continue to question your maker. Trust your Father who is merciful. Don't judge the potter for how he creates and does his thing. Trust your Father who has told you He extends everlasting mercy to you in Jesus. And he does it justly. Jesus paid it all for you. But he does no injustice in withholding mercy for all have sinned and we all deserve wrath. Because he's proven his eternal love for you and his everlasting commitment to you by calling you into the rest of salvation by faith in Jesus forever by justly giving you the righteousness that he demands as a gift to be taken by faith because Jesus paid it all for you on the cross. Because of that, you can trust your Father. You don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. You can, and I can remember that we will never in this life be spiritually grown up and on par with God. We will always be children talking to a spiritual adult, as it were. Unable to comprehend the fullness of his reasoning and his counsels. But we can know this, the heart of who our God is as God is his sovereign freedom. He's the potter or the clay. But it's a freedom that causes his incomparable glory to be seen in his mercy toward the unserving. He is to us in Christ a good, good father. Would you stand with me and read aloud? We've been doing this at the end of every message in Romans 9, the Great Commission. The Great Commission is like the gospel. It's clear. Not everything in Romans 9 is crystal clear. Can anybody say amen after this, this last 30 minutes or wherever long it was? Yeah, I mean, it's just tough, right? Difficult stuff, deep water. Tight reasoning and logic. But what is clear is the Great Commission. The gospel's clear. We believe it. The great commission from the one who saves us is clear. We must be about it and do it. So read it with me as we close. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me stop right there. And I haven't been stopping, but just for one, one thing to observe. Verse 18 tells me this. Jesus is sovereign God. He is the God of whom we read in Romans 9, and he will save some. That's important for you to remember. He has all authority, and as he commands us to go, he's telling you and me he will get the job done as we go. What do we do? Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And all God's people said, Amen. This is our task. And we can do it knowing that while we go for God with His gospel to the nations, God is God. And He's told us that He has chosen from the nations a people. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Revelations, John got to see the end. And the fact that the Great Commission gets done. And that there'll be people from the on, on whatever we prayed for, the uh, on something, Panwar people in India, I can't say it. There'll be people from that people group in heaven. And every other one we pray for every Sunday. Does that just, I mean, does that not just blow your mind? How do I know that? Because God's God. And he's chosen the people and he'll get the gospel to them and they will believe and they will gloriously be saved and they will be our brothers and sisters for eternity in heaven. But that ought to make us run to the nations. Run to our neighbors. Knowing that God is God and God can save even that person that's on your heart right now that you think there's no way God could ever save him. Paul that wrote the letter we've just been studying was that guy. And God said, you know what, buddy? You're on your way to persecute the church, but by the time you get to where you're going, this is how I work, this is how sovereign I am, you will preach the message you're trying to destroy. And from the bottom of your heart, you'll believe Jesus to be the Messiah. And you will go and win the city of Damascus instead of try to capture Christians and put them in jail. That's exactly what he did. We may not ever have anything that dramatic happen, but here's what I'm telling you. This is what I want you to leave on today. God will save some of your friends and some of your family. Will you obey the commission and speak the gospel? You say, wow, that's pretty simple. It is. It really is. And when we speak the message, the Bible says the, the gospel is the power of God, the dunamis of God, the dynamite power of God to salvation. He will, because he's sovereign, save some. Let's pray.